listening to the Bible 126 show. Okay, we're in the book of Job. Interesting book. On the one hand, it's obviously the classic book on joy through suffering. However, or I should be more precise, uh, why do the innocent suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? And that's the classic reference for that sort of thing. However, it's interesting. We've gone through the uh, prologue where Satan and the Lord, you know, challenges uh, Satan over over the whole issue of Job. And uh, incrementally, there's three slices on Job. The first one is all his possessions, including his kids. Second one is his health. That's taken away. See, and, and then the third one is these three friends. <laughs> and, uh, and if you've been through real trials, you often, I think, realize that sometimes the biggest part of that trial are the people who mean well but uh, are misguided. And uh, these three friends are now over. Job has given his rebuttal to them all. We've gone through three cycles of three friends, although Zophar dropped out the last cycle, so there's actually um, eight eight discourses, and uh, Job replying to each one. But now we get to the perhaps, the, well, clearly, not sure, perhaps. Oh, then after Job's rebuttal, we had Elihu. This interesting guy shows up that um, speaks by the Spirit, and uh, he's, all, he's in the role of a mediator. He's the, role, the commentators are very divided about Elihu, but uh, I come down on the side that he's uh, uh, really a spokesman for the Lord himself, in a sense, sort of sets the stage. But Elihu finally concludes, and that's where we were last week, right? Conclusion of Elihu, chapter 37. So now we're going to enter into four chapters that are among the four most interesting chapters in the Bible because it's the Lord speaking on his own behalf. And uh, it's interesting, we're going to go through four chapters and 123 verses, not one of them are about suffering. So whatever Job was expecting, uh, that wasn't it. In many respects, these four chapters are the climax of the book of Job. And they're about a very different subject than you might expect. It's going to talk about the creation. We're going to talk about animals, the provision for animals. Uh, the, the, the first section is really creative wisdom, the wisdom behind the creation itself which is very interesting because there isn't a lot about the creation of the Bible. A couple chapters in Genesis, a few Psalms, chapter 2 in Isaiah, but also uh, this portion of Scripture in Job will deal somewhat with the creation. The second section is on the providence of God, uh, exemplified by 12 representative animals that we'll talk about. And then the final section of the book is about the restraint of evil. The restraint of evil. Three sort of sections of, of the Lord's uh, rebuttal here. Your assignment, I'm not sure how far we'll get tonight. We'll sort of keep it loose and easy. But uh, we've gone kind of uh, quickly or overview on, on these lengthy discourses. Because while it's fabulous poetry and all of that, it's, it's, it, would, I, it was my view that uh, you can dig that out on your own. We just went over, it, went over the discourses pretty lightly. But at this point, we want to shift gears a little bit and, and just take our time. I don't know how far we'll get, but in case I don't get far enough, your assignment for next time is to identify two animals. I said there's 12 representative animals. That does not count the last two. There are two animals that, about which there's something like uh, 44 verses. Um, one is the behemoth, and one is Leviathan. 
And you wouldn't believe the diversity of opinion about who those animals are or supposed to be or were. You've got some that think that the behemoth is the hippopotamus, the rhino, or the elephant. Doesn't fit any of those, I don't think. And yet, who is he? And the Leviathan is often neither a crocodile or a whale. What I really should do is bring in the poem. I can't quote it from memory about the blind, the, the seven men from Hindustan, the seven blind men and the elephant. How these seven blind men all bump into the elephant, but each one bumps into a different part, and then they argue about what the elephant's like. One, you know, it's interesting. It's a classic poem about perception. But in any case, uh, we'll have these, we'll have these uh, two animals to talk about. Are they prehistoric animals? Are they alive today? And the more you read about them in the Book of Job, the more confused you'll get. And we will have, you know, I have a reputation to uphold. I will come off the wall with, wow. with the wildest idea you've heard yet. But in order for you to appreciate the wild ideas, you need to wrestle with the problem yourself. Figure out who the behemoth and the leviathan are, having read the portions in Job. I, I, I'm assuming we're not going to quite get that far tonight. And uh, I hope we don't get that far to deny you the pleasure of digging that out. You know, I used to love that in, in uh, mathematics courses or science courses. They would have some explanation, and then they'd have some really complicated problem that was left for the student to do. You know, <laughs> you know that it was implied that it was trivial. The student can carry it from here on. Of course, that's where the real kernel of truth turned out to be. Anyway, back to Job 38. We're going to hear the Lord ask 77 questions. He's going to give a science quiz. And count your blessings that you are not in Job's shoes at this time, because Job <laughs> gets a grilling. Of the 77 questions, of course, many of them were rhetorical questions. In fact, most of them probably are. But Job could answer none of them. Now, we have the benefit of some several thousand years of science and advanced studies and things. We can probably answer two or three of the 77. Okay. So in that smugness, we'll proceed. Okay, chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job. The Lord answered. See, this isn't a lie who were one yet. This is the Lord answering Job out of the whirlwind. I kind of like that, you know. Uh, the Lord, uh, we, 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 from here, you know, if we're really going to stretch this, you get a concordance and do a study about wind and how often the Lord speaks from wind, okay? Uh, you remember the small, still small voice of Elijah is one of them. Uh, but let's take in the New Testament. Nicodemus, remember John 3? The spirit is like the wind. You can don't know where it goes and where it comes from, but there's an there's an, an analogy made with the spirit of God. Speaking of the wind, and of course at Pentecost we have the Holy Spirit again, like a mighty wind, right? So here the Lord is uh, speaking out of a whirlwind. So you can do your own little word study on whirlwinds if you like. We'll move on. It said, verse two: Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> There have been a lot of discussions where I, 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 I could have pulled that phrase up. That's great. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Um, now, some people attribute this allegation against Elihu, but it's not true. Because, see, that was the, first, the last person spoke was Elihu. We'll find out later in the book that that is requoted and applied to Job. The Lord is talking to Job. There's no indictment of Elihu. In fact, Elihu is totally absent from the discussion. The Lord will, before it's all over, call these three friends to task. It's going to be very instructive. 
about how the Lord deals with these three friends. We're going to learn some interesting lessons by that. But let's get ahead of ourselves. Here, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? He's talking about Job. Job is standing there probably staring at his shoe leather at this point. He says, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. <laughs> That's kind of tough. <laughs> you know, take it like a man, guy. i got some questions I want to ask you. Okay. We're in Job's shoes. We might think about that. Can you imagine standing before the living God? Saying, okay, take it like a man. I've got a few questions I want to call you to task on. <laughs> Interesting. Verse 4. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Laid the foundations of the earth. Were you there? Obviously not. I mean, that's not a, it's a rhetorical question. But it's interesting because we often talk about science believes in the Big Bang, this, that, or the other thing, which is utter nonsense. Science is the, feel, is, the, is the skill of observation, taking data and learning from the data. Speculations about cosmology is a field of interest, not a field of science. And we can indeed indulge, from the best knowledge we have of astrophysics and a lot of other sciences, indulge in speculations about things, but we should not call them science. Science is one in which lends itself to empirical experimentation. It's pretty hard to create empirical exper experimentation about the formation of the universe. So we need to watch that. But here, that's his point here. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Taking data for an experiment? Formulating some theories? No, you weren't there, guy. Declare if thou hast understanding. Verse 5. Who hast laid the measures of it, if thou knowest? And who hath stretched a line upon it? Um, the whole idea of even measuring the universe is ambitious. It always fascinates me. Every time we build a more powerful telescope, the size of the universe gets bigger. You know, I, I, I'm an astronomer. I, I indulge in an observatory at home and stuff, but I have to smile at the at the arrogance of some of the speculations that come out of that field. Who has laid the measures of it? Now, if you're talking about the earth, and that may, is in fact the antecedent here, at this stage, this is one of the questions where we may not have bad answers because of the satellite measurements and so forth. We do know a lot about the earth, but at Job's time, this was a pretty interesting question. Or who hath stretched a line upon it? Watch for that one. You know what that implies? Somebody else was there. Have you ever measured something with a, with a tape by yourself? It's tricky. You can do it, yeah. But isn't it easier with two people? You see? And uh, who hath laid the measures of it, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? And, and this is maybe a very backhanded uh, allusion, but it, it does suggest the Trinity. Because we do see that in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, Elohim bara, Ereshet, and so forth, the... Uh, Elohim, God. The, the name, the word for God is Elohim. There used, meaning the Creator. It's a plural noun. The I M ending for certain Hebrew nouns is a plural. A cherub is a singular. What's a plural? Cherubim. A seraph is a singular. What's a plural? Seraphim. Right. Elohim is a noun that's plural. Yet it's always declined with verbs, Hebrew verbs that are singular. So there's actually grammatical contradictions every time the word Elohim is used because it implies. Multiple in one. 
And we notice when it says, uh, let us make man in our own image. That's where it shows up in the English. Kind of interesting. But anyway, stretching a line up on it, uh, it may be reaching, but I think that's a subtle hint of, of uh, somebody there assisting, and the Trinity may be masked in that verse subtly. Verse 6, whereupon are its foundations fastened? Where's the, fa- you know, where's the, where are the foundations of the, uh, the earth fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It's interesting that we do find in the Bible, well, first of all, where does, who laid the foundations of the, and to what is, are the foundations fastened? You've all seen, I'm sure, in your, in your studies, these bizarre theories of ancient cultures, whether it's on the shoulders of Atlas or whether it's on a, on a, what, a turtle? And there's something else. It's on something, an elephant and then the turtle. And I mean, there's interesting. <laughs> Uh, I don't think any of us hold to those views, do they? <laughs> and yet the Bible says that he hung it up on nothing. Interesting. Um, how can it be hung on nothing? That's what it says. Well, it's out there with gravity. Great. What's gravity? Well, it's a force. Good. If it's a force, can you do a counterforce? Well, we're working on it. You know, if you have an electrostatic force that has a direction and a field and you can create a counterforce, right? A magnetic force, that's a force field, you can create a counter. Get gravity. We observe it, we measure it. What is it? We don't know. We won't know until we can make a, you know, an anti-gravity kind of thing. You hear papers written on it and people study it, but they're not getting anywhere. That I, <laughs> that I know of, now I may be out of date, uh, things are happening, but but the point is, is gravity. Uh, there, you know, hung the earth upon nothing. It is fascinating to realize the earth is out in space. There are all these things. And they do, they interact with each other, but it's, again, it's, uh, it raises real space-time questions. And I won't start on that, or we will not get through chapter 38. Um, but it's interesting. Who laid its cornerstone when did he lay the cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It's interesting that the angels are created beings, right? And they were there when the universe was created. So I infer that the angels were created early. The earth was created. Foundations were laid. When the creation of the universe sprang into place, the earliest observers were who? The angels. They're mentioned twice in the book of Job, where the morning stars sang for joy. And the morning stars is a euphemism or poetic phrase for the angels. Also, the uh, the sons of God. We've all been through Genesis 6 and the book of Jude and whatever. We all talked about sons of God. I won't get into that here. But it's interesting that this demonstration of God's power creating the universe had many purposes, I'm sure, but among them it was ap- applauded by, with song, by the angels. And God is saying, were you there? Job's answer is not recorded here. It's a, <laughs> where were you, guy? That's basically the, th- the thrust of all that. Now God shifts the subject from the, the earth itself and the universe of such a broader canvas. He, he now shifts to the earth's most prominent feature. If you've observed the photographs from the space travelers um, looking back at the Earth, what's the most prominent feature? Three-fourths of it are oceans, right? 
Okay. God continues, verse 8, Or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth, as if it issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud its garment and the, and the thick darkness a swaddling band for it and broke up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shalt thou come, but no further, and here shalt thy proud waves be stayed. Interesting. Among the issues here, and there's many, the whole idea of sea of the sea is pretty interesting. You take two invisible gases, hydrogen and oxygen, and combine them. You get liquid. Kind of interesting. Um, we're going to get into ice in a little bit, so I'll hold off on the contradictions in water. We'll get there a little bit in a moment. But uh, water violates one of the basic laws in physics. It seems, sort of, it does. And uh, does for some interesting reasons, but I think we get into that a little bit later here. Um, it's interesting that the tides and the oceans are bounded. They have limits. And uh, those limits were established and reconfirmed after the flood in Noah. And here again reconfirmed. It's interesting, there's nothing more fluid and, and insubstantial than sand. How God uses that to bound the oceans. I think that's kind of interesting. He seems to have a sense of humor. Verse 12, Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth that the wicked might be shaken out of it? It is turned like clay to the seal and they stand like a garment. And from the wicked their light is withheld and the high arm shall be broken and so forth. It's interesting that the sun rises every morning at a different place. It shifts, you know, north to south and back. Now, with our knowledge of astronomy, that's not a mystery. But uh, at this stage, uh, did Job really recognize that? Not uh, Probably not. Okay, there's more in here, but we'll keep moving. Verse 16, Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea, or hast thou walked in search of the depth? It's interesting how we're studying, and we're starting to learn a little bit about the depths of the sea, but it's amazing how, much, how little we really do know. How little we really do know. The secrets of the deep. Verse 17. Have the gates of death been revealed unto thee? Oh, now you're getting rough. That's one of the things we know least about with all our science and all our investigations. What do we know about death? Very little. A lot written by... Crackpot, charlatans, and others that are, can be easily dismissed. And there are some investigations of scientific interest, but the truth of the matter is we know very little about death. We don't understand life yet, and, and life, death is more the... It's, it's very complicated. If uh, the body is so effective at reproducing itself, why does it age? The more you understand about uh, the DNA and all that, the, the more mysterious uh, aging becomes. Seems to be noise on the channel, and so forth. But um, it's an interesting question. It's also interesting that we age in a very, very predictable way. So the kind of noise that's introduced is, a, is of a particular kind. And aging is, is a mystery in terms of our, our understanding. of the. But that doesn't even get close to the thing of what death is all about, speaking in, 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 uh, in secular terms. And God challenges Job here on that point. You know, Have the gates of death been revealed unto thee? You and I know a lot about it, but where do we know about it from? God's word. 
Whatever we know, we know from here, nothing else. See, in other places, there are things we can learn experimentally. I don't think anyone's been... Ex There's one in here, I guess, that experimented with death. If you haven't heard his tape from coming back from the death, then I'll let you get Bill Eldridge's tape on. He's learned a little bit about it. But... but uh, You know people come back from the dead today, did you? You can talk to Bill after the class. Yeah, really? Yeah, okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm so flippant, you can't tell when I'm not kidding, and I'm not kidding. Okay. Yeah, verse 19. Where is the way where light dwelleth? Boy, that's a... <laughs> the Lord is getting kind of rough here. We know a lot about light, except what it is. You know, uh, uh, the more, if you've studied physics, you know that light has a frequency behavior because it has frequency and there's colors and you can spread them with a spectrograph. And it has certain behavior that's frequency-like. And yet it's got some other problems. It's also a stream of particles, photons. And it's got behavior of both for certain purposes. But just about the time you understand that or think you do, you realize it also has gravity. I mean, uh, it has mass, has weight. It is attracted by gravity. Stars bend when they go near an eclipse and they've measured it and so forth. And light, you know, do radio waves, are they affected by gravity? I thought light was a radio frequency phenomenon. Well, not exactly. You know, and on it goes. And, and, and light's kind of strange because it'll go through another media and slow down, but when it leaves the media, it speeds up again. Where does it get the energy to speed up? Real problem, interesting stuff. And uh, so light's, uh, light's kind of fun. It's, uh, um, and when we, uh, it's interesting too, that if we take the if you take the four basic mathematics of this, of light, they are parallel or analogous to the attributes of God. And uh, it's also interesting that the first direct quotation by God in the Bible is, "Let light be," or calls it into existence, and uh, so forth. And uh, I don't see him here tonight, but Dr. Metherell, who sometimes comes some many years ago, shared with me an interesting analogy because he happens to be an expert in imaging and holograms. He pointed out to me that you realize, Chuck, that the Bible is like a hologram. And I said, "Really? Yeah." He said he was speaking. In fact, he presented this, uh, presented the gospel to the Optical Society, a group of scientists, by doing this. Um, a hologram, first of all, if I had one up here and held it up in the light, it looks like a fog piece of film. It looks like a darkroom mistake. And yet, the, the way it's made is that if you have an object and you illuminate that object with a laser coherent, well-organized light. So the laser illuminates both the hologram. The hologram thus gets the direct laser light, but also the reflected light from the object. What the hologram actually saves in the motion is the interference between the two. So when you see the thing, it looks like just a clouded piece of film until you illuminate with a laser that made it in the first place. And then what you have is a what looks like a window into a three-dimensional space. And to give you an example, let's assume I was wearing a necktie this evening, and I held up a book in front of my necktie. If you took a photograph with a lens, you wouldn't be able to see the necktie because the book's in the way, right? But if you took a hologram, you could move your eye over here and look behind the book and see what color tie I was wearing. Or you could move your eye over here. In other words, you can look around objects. It's a, it's a three-dimensional uh, medium. Now, what's interesting about the hologram, what Alex continued, is that if you see it in natural light, it has no form nor comeliness that you would desire it. Well, really. Yet, if you illuminate it with the light that created it in the first place, i.e. the Holy Spirit, you see an image. Image of what? Jesus Christ. Now, if you take a hologram and cut, say, a square inch out of it, 
you don't lose any of the image because you can look around the hole. You follow me? If you have this, say, a, a two-foot sheet that's a hologram, you cut a one-inch square hole out of it, you can look around the hole. You don't lose anything. You lose a little resolution because everything else is not quite as sharp. So you get you know, something for nothing. But the point is, it's interesting, the Bible is the same way. There's no, there isn't any particular doctrine in any particular place. There isn't a chapter on baptism or a chapter on salvation. Every idea is spread, diffused throughout the whole Bible. If you were a communications engineer, you'd say it was designed for hostile jamming because the message is spread over the available spectrum. Spread spectrum techniques, if there's any members of the Association of Old Crows here, countermeasures people, same idea. And he says so deliberately in Isaiah 28. says, I've established my precept uh, line upon line, uh, my truth line upon line, precept on precept, here a little, there a little. God did that deliberately. Why? For lots of reasons, not the least of which, I could tear out a page and throw it away. Have I lost visibility of Jesus Christ? No. I may lose a little resolution. I may lose some little detail. But he is, uh, if you are engineers, you know that the hologram is a Fourier transform of the image. And uh, it's interesting the Bible has many of those properties. How fascinating it is that there's so much about light that we don't understand. And that has not just physics, but perhaps... Uh, Philosophical and theological. In James, it says, uh, the father, speaking of the father, the father of lights in which there is no variableness or turning. The word there is parallax. And if you have light at infinity, there is no parallax. The rays are parallel. So it implies a, an infinite source. And again, these phrases are interesting. But we're off the subject. Um, but God is, God nails uh, Job in verse 19. Uh, where is the way where light dwelleth? I suppose Job said, I don't know. <laughs> and as for darkness, where is its place? Darkness is strange stuff. You know, the glib answer is, well, it's the absence of light. Ain't that simple. Verse 20. That thou shouldest take it to its domain, and that thou shouldest know the paths to its house. The whole idea of lights get even more interesting if, if indeed the uh, papers by Dr. Barry Sutterfield and Trevor Norman are correct, who uh, have apparently evidence, developed evidence that the light, speed of light's been slowing down. That, boy, that shatters our whole concepts of physics, and there's lots of heat, and there's more heat than light in those discussions. Uh, very good. So you, you, you don't realize how non-objective scientists are until they get into one of these emotional discussions. It's really interesting. Verse 21, know, knowest thou it because thou wast then born or because the number of thy days is great? In other words, uh, you know, as far as this stuff's concerned, you were born yesterday, I guess, or something. Um, now, next two verses are perhaps two of the most fascinating in the Bible. If you are of a research turn of mind, here is a challenge, because some of the greatest minds in science who have access to the Bible, and many realize the arrogance of a lot of PhDs as such that they don't really have access, but there are many that do. But they ponder these two verses because they represent discoveries yet to be made. Notice what God says to Job in verse 22. Hast thou entered into the treasuries of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasuries of the hail? Well, gee, I guess we know a lot about snow and a lot about hail, but he goes on. 
which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. Oh, wait a minute. What does snow and hail have to do with weapons? We don't know. Uh, is it in the crystallography of the snow? Is there a, the point is, there is yet to be discovered secrets. Um, one of the interesting things at the Naval Academy, um, if you walk down Stribling Walk, at the end there's the academic group. There's Bancroft Hall dorms at one end. At the other end there's a collection of academic buildings. The prominent center one is Mari Hall. Alfred Thayer, uh, uh, not my hand, uh, Mari, uh, anyway, James Fontaine Mari. He uh, was reading the Bible. And he counted the phrase, the pathways in the sea. That blew him away. He says, you mean there's pathways in the sea? He says so, it must be. He was a believer. And it's interesting how many of the great scientists, the really great scientists, were believers. Newton, Pascal, Faraday, Morse. Um, you go through a history of science, it's amazing to discover how many of the really great scientists were believers. It's in... The Christians have, in a sense, been negligent and uh, allowed that field to get excessively dominated by the agnostics and the atheists. There is no conflict between good science and sound biblical teaching. Lots of conflict between religion and poor science. But in any case, uh, Mari uh, uh, decided understand he wanted to discover where the pathways are so he started making arrangements so that ships ships would start taking temperatures and make measurements and stuff and he became the founder he's known as the father of oceanography and everybody in the oceanography of course knows his name because he set up the original roots to that whole science but it's interesting he took it from the bible from the bible study. well someone's going to come along like verse uh, that's going to look at verse 22 and 23 and say gee i want to unravel that mystery and will probably make some fantastic discoveries out of the crystalline structures of snow and hail. Some way to harness that. Because God apparently has reserved this against the time of trouble. That's a phrase usually used of the tribulation period. Hmm? And against the day of battle and war. Interesting. Well, it might be giant hailstones, uh, maybe, uh, but uh, there seems to be more than that here. And, and uh, but I'll leave that to you. You know, Acts seventeen eleven still applies. Okay, we're just, you know, I, I'm just here to stir you up a little bit. Verse twenty four. And by what way is the light parted, which scattereth the east wind upon the earth, who hath divided a watercourse for the overflowing of waters, or the way for the lightning of thunder, to cause it to rain on the earth, where no man is? And on the wilderness, where there is no man, to satisfy the desolate and waste ground and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. In other words, what he's talking about is weather, right? Rain, cyclonic disturbances. Um, and the rain, of course, takes care of the land, and we'll see, shortly see animals, um, where there's no man. In other words, man's got nothing to do with it. He's, in effect, saying, who's watering the garden? You're not even around, guy. I'm taking care of it. But it's interesting to see where that discussion of the weather starts. By what way is the light parted which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? What's the energy source for wind? Boy, the wind, when the wind blows, there's a lot of power. You know, there's nothing more terrifying than when nature really flexes its muscles, right? 
if you're in a hurricane, you see mostly on the East Coast, um, but, uh, you know, if you're in a hurricane or a tornado or whatever, you know, the wind has, can have enormous forces. Where does the energy come from? The sun. How did Job know? You see, this all attributes this, the driving, all this stuff, back to what? The light. The light from what? The light from the sun. All energy on this earth, all energy on this earth comes from the sun. It gets stored in strange ways. In the plants and animals and fossil fuels, all the original source is all from the sun. Okay. Um, pretty interesting. Very interesting. Let's see, I guess we've got down to about, well, verse 28, has the rain a father, or who hath begotten the drops of the dew? Out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered it? The waters are hidden as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. You know, it's interesting, as we study uh, uh, physics, we discover that when things get warm, they get bigger. And when they get cold, they get smaller. There are a few exceptions, but in general, that's the rule. In fact, we speak of a coefficient of thermal expansion. It gets warmer. It, it, it increases per unit length a certain fraction. That's a coefficient. It's a unitless measure. Or it's degrees per, per unit measure, I should say. Things expand when they get warm, and they contract when they get cold. And the ultimate that's when they freeze. But it's interesting. If water did that, life would be impossible on the Earth. There's a, there's a principle we're discovering. Even the non-believing scientists use the phrase the anthropic principle. They've discovered, as we study everything, as we discover our universe, that if we look at the big things through a telescope or we look through the smallest things, say, through an electron microscope, if you take those dimensions, do you know it's equal in both directions in terms of orders of magnitude? That puts man in the middle. And even unbelievers have noticed that, that the universe is man-centered. It's also interesting that there are hundreds of ratios that if you alter any one, one, 2%, everything falls apart. Example is the Earth. We talk about the greenhouse effect. If there's a greenhouse effect, if there's a little too much, if the reflectivity of the Earth, that's called albedo in astronomy. If you have a planet or something, it has a reflectivity. And if it reflects a lot of light, it's one thing. If it can be very bright or it can be very dark, if it absorbs most of the light, it has a reflectivity, so much percent. If the albedo of the Earth changes a fraction of a percent, it either gets too hot or there's either an ice age or it's too hot to sustain an atmosphere. In balance, it's in balance very delicately. Not one thing. There's dozens and dozens of these ratios. I'm trying to get a collection of those for my book. I'm writing a book beyond time and space, and that's one of the issues I want to take up is the anthropic principle. But one of these examples happens to be water. If water when it froze, shrunk, then rivers and things would freeze from the bottom up and some would never thaw. But water doesn't do that. In a lake or a pond, as it gets colder, it has to get to four degrees, you know, before anything happens. And then as it hits zero, it, when it freezes, it expands. That's why ice floats, because it expands when it freezes. But that's unique. That doesn't happen to other materials in physics. It happens to water. Its molecular structure is such. There's some reasons. Does it? It's been designed to. Oh. (laughs) 
out of whose womb came the ice? I don't think that was called to Job's attention, but it's hidden behind the question. Or the hoary frost of heaven. Who gendered it? The waters are hidden as with the stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Then it changes subjects here. 30, verse 31. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? All through the book of Job, we find names of constellations. And this is one of the most famous places. The Pleiades, sometimes known as the Seven Sisters. It's more than seven stars, but seven is what you see with the naked eye normally. Um, is, a, is a constellation. Orion is a constellation. And uh, if you haven't been exposed to this, I encourage you to study the Matzeroth. That's the Hebrew name for the Zodiac. We very appropriately have a distaste as biblical students for the Zodiac because it smacks of astrology. And that's very healthy because it was a capital crime in Israel. If astrology was just a stupid superstition, it would be ignored like many superstitions are. But astrology is dangerous. It's a demonic entry. However, the zodiac means the way. The name of the Hebrew is a Matzeroth. And as we learn the names of the key stars in the key constellations by their Hebrew names, we discover it lays out the gospel. A very interesting study. It's a footnote here. I just mentioned if you haven't been exposed to that, you're in for a treat if, you're, if you lean that way. But here, something else is going on. Bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion. There's two different ideas that may be embodied here. One of them is there may be gravitational influence issues here that have yet to be discovered. And there are people chasing that one. It could be much more simpler. The Pleiades is a constellation that's generally associated with springtime in terms of the year. And Orion is a constellation that is associated with winter. If you're interested in the constellation of Orion, you can see it best in the coming months. If you're interested in the Pleiades, you can find it if you know where to look at the right time. However, it's really a springtime constellation. So what may be suggested in these questions is, can you, Job, control the seasons? I mean, can you make it spring or winter? Obviously you can't. That's, that, that may be a poetic way of saying that. Or there may also be things hidden behind this. We go to verse 32. Canst thou bring forth the Maseroth in its season? And the word Maseroth is the Hebrew term which generally is applied to the Zodiac constellations. And we've done a tape on that. If you're interested, you can chase that down. Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Again, he's asking him astronomical questions. Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set its dominion in the earth? Not likely, huh? Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds, that abundance of waters may cover thee? In other words, it's interesting, even today when we have a drought, with all our technology, tough spot. We can seed clouds here and there. That's a not a very substantial answer. With all our skill, with all our knowledge, controlling weather, climate, providing... Uh, a break in a drought season is, is beyond our skills. And, of course, uh, suggesting that Job had the, you know, it was to him too, of course. Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, Here we are! <laughs> Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Oh, boy. Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? This might apply to man, but I don't think it does. Um... Wisdom in the inward parts. 
Boy, we could make an interesting catalog of instinct. There's a wasp that has an interesting life cycle. It knows that there are three types of tarantulas, and one of the three has a soft spot under it. So what it does, it digs a hole and waits. And when the tarantula of the right kind goes over the hole, it stings the tarantula, which doesn't kill it. It puts it into a coma. Pulls it down the hole, lays its eggs, and when the eggs hatch later, it feeds on the tarantula that's in a coma. What's interesting about that is I don't know how the wasp learned that through evolution. (laughs) There was a lot of trial and error involved for it to figure out which of the three types of tarantulas is vulnerable to this particular approach. It's interesting. And you, as you go through life, you can find, uh, you know, uh, uh, example after example. You know, I love the business of fish eyes. Uh, all fish, all eyes have a focal length. All lenses have a focal length. If you have a camera, you know what focal lengths are. Well, fish, each type of fish has a natural type of prey or food that it eats. Did you know that the eyes have a focal, have a focal length tuned to the fish, to the food that's not natural for that fish? That's interesting, because lots of different kinds of fish. There's, uh, one fish that has a problem because the food it likes is near the surface of the water and yet there's birds that prey on that kind of fish. So this fish has to have a short focal length for the food but a long focal length to watch out for its enemies. It has bifocals. Redus, redus. And, uh, of course, when I talk in evolution, I love to talk about a seahorse. We've all seen seahorses in the aquariums. A seahorse is a marsupial, which means it has a pouch for the young. The problem the evolutionist has to face is to explain how the pouch got on the male and not the female which lays the eggs. That's a partnership. <laughs> you have any servo engineers? Any engineers here? Servo design? Uh, it's interesting how... Um, I'll start from scratch. You know, I, I, I use this the, the Sunday, you know, about my wristwatch. Um, if I told you that I had a, a dozen engineers work two years to design the parts and the, the, the liquid crystal display and the uh, silicon chip that drives it and all that, and uh, these engineers designed it, then they handed it over to some highly skilled technicians that fabricated the parts and put it together, and then as this thing was checked out, they handed it to a, you know, through a distribution channel, got to a store, and I bought it. Did you buy that? That's not what happened at all. Let me tell you the real story. Millions of years ago, <laughs> There were atoms floating through the universe, and, and the gravitational effect brought these atoms together to form certain materials. And strange cosmic winds and random chance and, and uh, so forth caused these things to be shaped into perfect little parts. I, I have a hard time explaining how it got to letters that I mean, tell me the date and the number. But anyway, and by millions and millions of years, of course, they all came together and made a perfect watch, and I, it worked, keeps perfect time ever since. Sound, it, you know, it's so absurd that it's... What does absurd mean? If I asked you to define absurd, what would you call it? My suggestion is it means improbable to the extreme. If you do a scientific experiment, you always you design an experiment to support some evidence, and you let chance be the rival conjecture, and you try to design the experiment to reject chance. Use a chi-square analysis or some advanced other statistical technique to reject chance as a rejected. If you take any of the premises based on evolution, you can easily re- reject chance as being absurd. Absurd. 
Then you talk about mutations. Well, mutations have to be degenerative or they violate the second law of thermodynamics, which is called the entropy laws. But if you want to talk about mutations, what that says is that if you buy the idea of mutations to get, that means I take all the, all the parts of this watch, put them in a sack, and I shake the sack. How long do I shake it until the watch works better? <laughs> Not works, works better. That's the, that, that, that makes mutations a little difficult. Um, and I'm indebted to some of my friends for pointing out to me that uh, amino acids. Amino acids make peptides, which make proteins, and proteins are the substance of life. Amino acids, it, it, sometime when you're home, you know what tetrahedon is. That's where you have four things, four, four peaks to a triangle. You have a triangle and then one at the top. You make yourself a tetrahedon with four different things. You'll discover if you play that and make them, you can make two, t- two types. There's only two ways to do four different things in a tetrahedon, which gives rise to the fact that amino acids have two kinds of molecules. And if you take one kind in a solution and put polarized light through it, you have to turn it to the left for it to neutralize. The other kind, you turn to the right. So they call those molecules left-handed and right-handed. And a spiral is a very similar kind of concept. Okay, if amino acids happen by chance, you'd expect what, half and half? It's like, you know, uh, you know if, you, if I dump a thousand dimes on the floor, spread them out, you'd expect half of them to be heads and half tails approximately, Right? within random error, and how would you tell if they're random error? You use chi-square to see if they're fair, to, fair coins. Point is, if that were true, that amino acids, you'd have half left-handed, half right-handed. All living tissue has left-handed amino acids. The universe is left-handed. Well, wait a minute, Chuck, aren't they right-handed? Yes, there are. They're poisons. Strychnine is right-handed. Brucine is right-handed. So the, the, the right-handed amino acids are toxic to life. You know the story about the monkeys? You take six monkeys in a room and you have them bang on typewriters and they eventually turn out Hamlet? (laughs) Oh, that's science. I mean, listen. Falsely so-called. The problem with that, by the way, if anybody ever confronts you with that, is what happens, it's called the N plus one problem. They've typed out Hamlet, but they don't stop typing. Right? What's the next thing? Something else. Gibberish. In other words, part of it is selection. But there's another problem with the amino acids. If I use that analogy... How far would the monkeys get if the odd-numbered keys were fatal to the monkeys? Yeah. See, not very far. So that's the amino acid story. The really wild thing, if you're into this sort of thing, is to study DNA molecules. Because you take the amino acids, make peptides, peptides make proteins, and, and, and that's a whole study in itself, of course. But it's interesting, the DNA molecule is um, a collection of four amino acids taken three at a time. It is a digital code, not an analog code. Most things in life that you see in nature are analog, analogous. This is a digital code. What does that mean? That means you've got to find, first of all, someone's got to design the code. They've got to design a way to store it. They've got to design a way to retrieve it. They've got a way to design a way to translate it into action. That's a heavy design problem. Well, oh, I, I, was, I was talking about the engineers. The reason I started with a watch the idea of the watch happening by chance is, of course, absurd. Do you realize the watch is simple compared to the wrist that it's on? The wrist is a closed-loop servo. If there's any engineers here, you know you cannot design a closed-loop servo by accident. It's a complex subject. There's probably not one engineer a thousand that would know how to design a closed-loop servo, especially with variable rates in three, in, in the three orders of magnitude. It also has a temperature sensor. It has adjustment to temperature. It has a, in, a ability to fight off invaders, and on it goes. It's self-healing. 
If something's wrong, it sends a signal called pain. I mean, the, the wrist is a complex system, vastly more complex than the watch. And yet the wrist happened by accident, not by design. Nonsense. It all happened by chance. Oh, really? Then why are we symmetrical? Why do we have two eyes, two ears? Why is the right and left hand mirror images of each other, or the feet, and so forth? Can't ha- it can't happen by chance. It wouldn't happen by chance, not by randomness. Why do leaves symmetric? Why are flowers? It doesn't make sense. You can prove it violates the laws of entropy. The... Uh, Anyway, um, DNA is a, is a digital code. Now, I'm really anxious for someone with an information science background to explain to me how you design an information storage and retrieval system, a coding system, and a way to transfer. If you're designing a computer, you have to have a way to get in, get out. You need a way to store the data and find it when you need it. You have to also have something to manipulate information. That's probably the easiest of it all. Then you have to have some way to translate into action. The signals in the computer have to drive a printer or a speaker, a loudspeaker, or move an arm of a robot or something. In the cell, I'm not talking about the brain or the, I'm talking about the cell. There are 200 processes going on that have been designed that are instructed by that code. How big is the code? It encodes everything about you, including your aging process and all your offspring. About 500,000 pages of information in one molecule. It's a large molecule. But um, all by accident. I mean, imagine that. And I'm interested of those four amino acids that code the thing, the three out of four code. Do you realize it's the same in all life? But it tells whether it's a leaf or a plant or a cat or a, a whatever. You know, interesting. Heavy design problems. By accident, no way. That's called the engineers speak of signal and noise ratio. We have invented the most absurd God to worship. You know, uh, the ancients worshipped Baal and Moloch, and that offended God because he's the living God, and these were phony, right? Modern man has gone one better. We don't worship Baal or Moloch. We worship nothingness. We ascribe the creation of the universe to chance, randomness, to noise. I have to believe that that's the most insulting idol of all, that our world, our culture, our high school textbooks, our college professors, our, 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 as Peter says in Second in Second Peter chapter three, it says they are willingly ignorant of. This isn't a lack of. It's not a breach of intellect that causes people to embrace these bizarre ideas. It's an attempt to escape accountability. If, if I'm a businessman, there are security laws about disclosure. And if you make misrepresentations in a document to investors, you can get into trouble. If the disclosures laws of the United States, so the Securities Exchange Commission of the United States, applied to biology textbooks for high school, the publishers would be serving jail sentences. Because they have these equations, the amino acids, forming peptides and proteins. And you have these complicated, this plus this equals this plus H2O, water. And then they have you believe that, gee, well, the way this happened was lightning struck in a primordial soup that caused some proteins to accidentally happen. Nonsense. But here's the kicker. If this plus this equals this plus water, and it's a reversible, all our organic equations are reversible, that means it can go in either direction, it establishes equilibrium. How do you unbalance the equilibrium to get some of the products? Remove the water. Then it flows to the right. That means that if that was going to happen, there's one place it can't happen, and that's where it's wet. So if you're going to have that happen, it's got to happen where it isn't wet. Now, what's frustrating about that, that's first-year chemistry. 
And for them to publish that stuff in textbooks is deliberate fraud, not oversight. Anyway, enough of that. Who hath put wisdom in the enterprise? I guess what started this whole excursion was the idea of instinct in animals. How do animals have instinct? You see? It's hard to go on because you can think of dozens of interesting examples of instinctive behavior. Program. How do the birds know how to navigate? i got to find, I used to have years ago a cartoon that someone wrote about the equipment that a bird has to have. You know, to get from the North Pole to the South Pole. You know, there's a compass, there's a map, there's, it was just, of course, it was the, 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 the skill of bird. And it's, a, it's fascinating how the bones are hollow to light and weight. And it's amazing how birds are designed. Yeah. Spider webs. Trapdoor spiders in this country, this part of the country, trapdoor, that's a whole other thing. Um, on it goes. Who hath put the wisdom in the inner parts? Where did they get, they didn't evolve this way. There's some behavior that may be, but the point is that uh, there's no way. There's no the dolphins. The dolphins in their head have a, a sound lens, and what the dolphin does, it sends out a square wave to your engineers, but it sends out a sharp noise, sound, and the echoes come back, and the sound lens in the head tells the dolphin where his prey is. How does it do that? It has multiple layers of tissue. In each layer, the speed of sound is different. And by those layers, it can focus the sound and knows where it's coming from. Incredible. In fact, there's probably not one acoustic engineer in 10,000 that could design a a, a valid model of that without a lot of extra help. Here's the interesting thing. It can't happen by chance. Not only because it's too complicated. If If it didn't work perfectly, how would the dolphin keep from dying? If you're going to do that by chance, you're going to run out of dolphins. Everybody says, well, gee, you know, that's the other argument, well, it happened by chance because it took lots of time. If you go through the arithmetic, if it's really random noise, the time is infinite. It's not long, it's infinite, because it goes asymptotic if you really plot it right. But let's set that aside. Where are you going to get the material? Where are you going to get the amino acids to keep trying? Because that's also virtually infinite. The dolphin example is a good example. If the dolphins are dying as you're trying to make the sound lens right, you're going to run out of dolphins because the ones that are dying aren't giving offspring. I mean, you ought to go. So it's silly. It's so it's absurd is the term. Anyway, I'm sorry. Back to verse 36. Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Who hath given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds in wisdom? Who can pour out the water skins of heaven when the dust groweth into hardness and the clods cleave fast together? Here's referring to the breaking up of a drought. Wilt thou hunt the prey for the lion? See, now he's shifting. He's now shifting gears. He's going to talk. Are you going to provide for the animals? I mean, what, what, what? God provides. Man destroys. Ask any of the animals. They were happier before we came on the scene. <laughs> who, wilt thou hunt, who will hunt the prey for the lion or fill the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie and wait? Who provideth for the raven his prey when his young ones cry unto God? They wander for lack of food. Verse chapter 39. Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Now he's going to start talking about obstetrics. Hey, uh, Job, if you're so smart, are you going to take care of uh, the wild goats of the rock? Canst thou mark when the hinds do calve? 
Canst thou number the months that they fulfill? Or knowest thou the time when they bring forth? They bow themselves, they bring forth their young ones, they cast out their sorrows. Their young ones are become strong, they grow up in the open field, they go forth and return out unto them. Who hath sent out the wild ass free, and who hath loosed the bands of the wild ass, whose house I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwellings? He scorneth the multitude of the city, neither regardeth he the crying of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searcheth after every green thing. Will the wild ox be willing to serve thee and abide by thy crib? He's God is here uh, uh you know, uh, chiding Joe because he's picked an animal that's untamable. And, you know, there are obviously some animals that are tameable. That's their nature. And we tourists to take advantage of that. There are some animals that are not tameable. And he uses an example here. And, uh, it's, uh, and what God's really saying is, where does he get this behavior? You see? And God's taking, you know, he's made him that way. That's the point. Canst thou, verse 11, 10, canst thou bind the wild ox with its band in the furrow? Or will he harrow the valleys after thee? Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great? And wilt thou leave thy labor to him? Wilt thou believe him that he will bring home thy seed and gather it into thy barn? Gavest thou the goodly wings to the peacocks or the wings and feathers to the ostrich? Now, this is where you know God has a sense of humor, because even bringing up the ostrich, let's see what he says about ostriches. And this, this, you got to really recognize that this is where God is, has to have a smile on his face. Or wings and feathers to the ostrich, which leaveth her eggs in the earth and warmeth them in dust and forgetteth that the foot may crush them and that the wild beast may break them. She is hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain, without fear, because God hath deprived her of wisdom. <laughs> Neither hath he imparted to her understanding. When she lifteth up herself on high, she scorneth the horse and his rider. Here is an animal that can outrun a horse. Very, very powerful, fast creature that doesn't understand those eggs are her young. God, God I love that. God speaking of that God hath deprived her of wisdom. Who said that? God did. Interesting. Now that shifts the since the ostrich cannot run a horse, that brings the subject to horses. Hast thou given the horse strength? Are horses strong? You bet. Horses love competition and conflict. Horses are outstanding in battle. You and I don't have that experience because we're not in that technology. But that's one of the things that made them great in their history, historical development. Is they were just champions. Of, they, 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 they were good at that. They, uh, you can sense that in a horse in terms of its uh, tendency to race. Try passing. You hear on a trail? Try passing one of the horses. They under, if you may not understand competition, they do. <laughs> Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. He paweth in the valley, and he rejoices in his strength. He goeth on to meet the armed men. He mocketh at fear, and is not dismayed. Neither turneth he back from the sword. 
The quiver rattleth against him, and the glittering spear and the shield he swalloweth the ground with fierceness and rage. Neither believeth he that he is the sound of the trumpet. That it is the sound of the trumpet. He saith among the trumpets, Ha ha! And he smelleth the battle afar off, and the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Isn't this great? You know, this is this is great poetry, great expressiveness. And of course, it's being we're, we're, and it's also gone through a translation. You obviously always lose something in translation, but uh, you, you just you can feel the pulse of the prose here, can't you? God speaking, interesting. But let's not be misled. God speaking from Genesis one one to Revelation twenty two, and the style is different all the way through, but the message is the same. Doth the hawk fly by wisdom and stretch her wings towards the south? Doth the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? She dwelleth and abideth on the rock, upon the crag of the rock, in the strong place. And when she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off, her young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is she. Interesting thing about an eagle. You know, if I gave you an assignment... Imagine your mathematical assignment. If you were in a class in in, uh, in calculus, and you have an eagle or a projectile, or let's say a projectile, at a certain speed at a certain altitude, and you want to get that projectile at a certain speed at that altitude to the ground in the fastest way, how would you do it? Let me tell you what the answer is not. It's not a straight line. See, if you were at a dead still, it might be. But if you're in motion, you've got to account for that motion. So there is a curve between where you are at some speed, at some altitude. There is a curve that optimizes your path to the ground at that spot. That curve happens if you analyze it and, and, and go through the right calculus equations to get the minimum transit time. It'll turn out to be the equation of a cycloid. That's a non-trivial curve. A cycloid, if you were going to create one synthetically, you'd take a wheel on the blackboard, put a piece of chalk on the rim, and roll the, roll the, the wheel, if you follow me, and you get, you get a cycloid. Now, what's interesting, why am I bringing this up? If there's an eagle in the sky flying and spots a prey, and boy, how they spot it, I don't know, they have incredible eyesight, it will make a perfect cycloid to that spot. It will adopt a path that is a, I think it's a third level, third order equation. It's precise and a non-trivial solution. It's interesting. God's asking Job, how did it know? Hmm? Interesting. Well, we got a little, uh, we're doing pretty good. We got a little break here, verse 40, chapter 40. Moreover, the Lord answered to Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? <laughs> I'm sure that God's going to call me for call me down for a lot of things, but boy, I sure hope he doesn't hit me with that one. That's tough. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And Job kicked the ground with his shoe a couple of times. No, not really. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? 
I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. I love verse 5. It proves Job is Jewish. You know, you've been through this, you know. The guy says, uh, gee, you've eaten it. Are you going to have another one? You've eaten four already. He says, five, but who's counting? You know? <laughs> well, once I have spoken, then I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. You've got to do that with a Jewish accent. It's true. He was, I think, the son of Issachar, so he probably was Jewish. Anyway, verse 6. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, so he continues now, Gird up thy loins now like a man, and I will demand of thee and declare out it. Boy, he starts out that way, doesn't he? Come on, guy, you're going to take this like a man. Eh, I'd rather not. <laughs> Who can argue with God, right? Now we're getting to the tough spot. You see, we've shifted from the animals. We have these, what turns out if you count, they're 12 representative animals. We're shifting now to the moral issues. Gird up thy loins now like a man, I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also annul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be justified? Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath. Behold, everyone that is proud and abase him. He's saying, Job, rhetorically, he's saying, Job, okay, come up on my throne and be God for a while. See if you can handle it, guy. So that's the flavor of what he's saying here. You see? You know, Has thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Canst cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold, everyone that is proud, and abase him. What the book of Job is about, among other things, is pride. You're going to really hear a lot about pride as we get going here. See, part of what's going to surface here is Job is better probably than any of us. None of us are perfect. He wasn't either. But he's, he did pretty well. But even with Job, there was a pride problem. And if there's a pride problem with Job, is there a pride, pride problem with me? You bet. All of us. Verse 12, key verse. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. Mm. Behold now, behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Now, hello now, his strength is in his loins. And his force is in the muscles of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are like strong pieces of bronze. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief in the ways of God. Who, he who made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fens, and the shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteneth not. He trusteth that he can draw up the Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes. His nose peaceth through snares. Canst thou 
Now, that's the behemoth. Now we're talking about the Leviathan. There's two animals here that are separated from the twelve that we're going to get a lot of attention with. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose, or bore his... By the way, before I leave the behemoth right now, we're going to come back to him, of course. The behemoth has been speculated as being a hippopotamus. Sort of fits, but doesn't. Or a rhinoceros. Or an elephant. Doesn't fit any of those. Uh, then there's some that feel it's an extinct species. Something was literal at one time, time of Job, but since it's died away, so we have no experience with it. That's very interesting. We'll come back to that because there's, some, there, there's obviously the reason I'm doing, there's several issues here, and we'll come. But let's 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 keep moving for the moment. Let's go. Let's, I think we get through 41 here. Now we have a second mystery called Leviathan. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose or bore his, bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons and his head with fish spears? Lay thy hand upon him, remember the battle, do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dares stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. I shall not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can uncover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to the another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together. They cannot be sundered. By his sneezings, a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Ooh. Anyone seen the Leviathan lately? <laughs> out of his nostrils goeth smoke, out of, as out of a boiling pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, his sorrow is turned to joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the lower millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of consternation, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the javelin. He esteemeth iron as straw, and the bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of his spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Upon the earth there is not his like who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is, what? A king over all. The children of pride. Ooh, 
wonder who this guy is, huh? Got some ideas, I can tell. I can just sense it. The good news is I've misplaced some of my notes, so I won't bore you with a lot of extra trivia here. Oh, yeah. Leviathan. Leviathan. Is, now some people will argue that these are both mythical or legendary creatures. And I don't buy that because the description is too vivid, so tangible, and, 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 and apparently in a frame of reference that Job, that relates to Job's experience. I mean, he may not be able to answer the questions, but the questions are not irrelevant to his own uh, perceptions. I also don't think that behemoth is a hippo, an elephant, or a rhino. And I also don't think the Leviathan, the two speculations you find in most commentators, that it's either a crocodile or the whale. And somehow I haven't seen uh, examples that fit this description. So the first thing I'd like to turn, have you turn with me is to... I'm, I'm sorry to deprive you of your homework assignment, but... Uh, Oh, Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27. Isaiah, if you, Isaiah, if you really want to have it right. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his heart. Now, by the way, in that day, what day are we talking about? Day of the Lord. You bet. Technical term. With his hard and great and strong sword shall punish who? Leviathan. And who is he? The piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the sea monster that is in the sea. Ooh, well, I thought Leviathan was Satan. Gee, and yet he's in the sea. That's interesting. When we, in, in chapter 41, Job 41, 34, there's a major hint. He beholdeth the high things. He is king over the children of pride. Who does that suggest to you? Satan. The word behemoth, by the way, in the Hebrew is a plural. It refers to beasts. In a sense, maybe all beasts of some kind. The word Leviathan in the Hebrew means the folded one. The folded one. Where is the behemoth? Where does he travel? On the land. Where is the Leviathan travel? In the sea. Turn to Revelation 13. By the way, Acts 17.11 is hereby invoked. Speaking of the Bereans, Luke warns you, says they were more, they received the word with readiness of mind, but searched the scriptures daily to prove whether these things be so. We're going to move out in left field here a little bit. Revelation 13, verse 1, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his, ten, his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And he goes on, right? Then we get down here to verse, where did the first beast come out of? The sea. Verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming out, out of what? The earth. Oh, really? It had two horns like a lamb. He spoke like a dragon. Two beasts. One beast identified by the head wound that was healed and all the world amazed. 
The other one being called a beast here in chapter 13, but subsequently referred to as the false prophet. This, this duet is empowered by whom? The dragon. And dragon is identified in chapter 12, verse 9 as who? The Satan. Satan, right? So we have a satanic trinity. We have a satanic trinity. Now, it's interesting that there may be, I'm going to just suggest this as sort of our way of, of, uh, of uh, dealing with uh, these, two, these chapters, because we'll leave chapter 42 and then a, an overview of the book for next time. You might do your own study of the behemoth and the Leviathan in the scripture. But I'm going to suggest to you some ideas that um, I'm going to suggest you the, to you the ideas and then you on your own reread the passages. I'd like to pick up the behemoth, first of all, in chapter 40, verse 19. The behemoth is the chief of the ways of God, chief of God's works, anyway, who made him to make his sword approach unto him. It's a strange translation, perhaps, than the New Eng- the uh, English Bible. He is the chief of God's works, made to be tyrant over his peers. If you reread chapter uh, chapter 40, particularly verses 20 through 24, I'm going to suggest to you that the behemoth... Now, they may have been literal animals, don't misunderstand me, but I think God is getting at something else here. Just as he imputes to certain animals certain um, attributes, he is imputing to these idioms, if they're real animals or if not. They may have been real animals that are now extinct. I'm going to badger that issue. The real issue is what is God really saying? And I think the behemoth represents self-centeredness, self-confidence, self-sufficiency. It's the pride of man. We sometimes call that the flesh. Okay? The Leviathan is untamable. The main attribute of the uh, Leviathan is untamable. From verses 12 through 17, we discover that he has an amazing ability to defend itself, is deeply entrenched, well-defended system can't be overthrown. I'm going to suggest to you that it represents the world, spiritually speaking. I'm going to suggest to you that we have the world, the flesh, and the devil between these two animals, empowered by whom? By Satan himself. And I think that I, I springboard from that primarily from verse 34 of chapter 41, and then looking back. I'm going to suggest to you that the spiritual lesson here, that God would have his have, because it's fine to talk about Job, it's fine to speculate about these animals, that, and the Leviathan was this, that, and the other thing, fine. What's God's real point, independent of who he was? These are our adversaries, or embodiments of our adversary. The flesh and the world, the world system. Has anyone ever been able to reform the world? Everybody tries, in one way or another. Has it, have any succeeded? No. The, the description of the Leviathan, spiritually speaking, describes the world. The behemoth describes um, the flesh. 
Okay, we don't have time, I think, to do justice to the wrap-up, so I think we'll leave that for next time, Chapter 42, and we'll do an overview of what is the real issues here, the real issues of the book of Job. Why did the innocent suffer? What we're really dealing with here is not the problem of suffering. What we're really dealing with here is God. One of the things we need to really be conscious of is he is, after all, the creator. He made us in the first place. He has a purpose in us. Number one, we don't question his ways. He says his ways are above finding out. That's what Job's problem was. Job did pretty well all in all, but his problem was is that he's still even there. Job, remember he begged? He begged to see... Boy, if I could have an audience with God, everything would be all right, right? Well, he got his audience. If that's an audience of, if that's an audience with God, I think I'll pass and take somebody else to work with. No, seriously, I think that, uh, the other thing that we, as we watch this, it's, uh, it's interesting to see the difference position that you and I have by being in Christ. That we have a, a patient teacher and, uh, one who is Loving and forgiving. That's one of the problems with Job's friends. We'll talk, I'm getting a little ahead of the game. We'll talk about it next time. But, but the real problem was that theology was too small. Life is painted on too big a canvas. And uh, we don't have a view of everything up front. And it's interesting how we try to force fit life into some little limited theology. God is bigger than that. God is just indeed. But he's also loving, compassionate, and provides for us. And uh, so it's uh, interesting. So I'll leave you to explore Leviathan and Behemoth over the coming week. And uh, we'll try to finish Job and put it in perspective next time. And uh, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. God is great. It's obvious that we're here by design. In every place you turn, everything you touch, everything you see, screams out at you of the existence of an incredible intelligence that put it all there. And not capriciously, for a purpose, you were designed and provided for. Before Adam was created, God knew He's outside our time domain. He knew, he knew the end from the beginning. He chose you back then. He chose you. He loves you. He has a design for your life. If you will but accept it. He won't, invite, he won't invade your sovereignty. But just as he has a design for the animals and a design of the universe and a design that causes cells to function, he also has a design that's perfect for your life. And it's available to you for the asking. He is great. He's prepared a destiny for you and I that is so fantastic it goes beyond words. And it's there for free. He has one rule, and that's he wants to give it to you for free. You can't earn it. Trying to earn it is called religion. God is not interested in religion. He's anti-religious. He's interested in a relationship. And he wants a relationship with you personally. Let's bar our hearts. Oh, Father, we praise you. We thank you, Father, that while you are awesome and while your majesty is beyond our comprehension, 
Father, we also thank you for being close, for being proximate, for being available to us. That you've gone to the extreme of restricting yourself to our dimensions and became man and stood in our place to pay the way for our destiny that you provided. Father, we're flabbergasted at the precision of your caring that you watch over us every moment, every detail, and care so much for us. Father, we would ask that you would just send your Holy Spirit to guide us, lead us, inform us, increase in us a hunger for your word. Help us, Father, to strip those things out of our life that get in the way. Help us, Father, to order our priorities in a way that would please you. Father, we would ask these things that we might indeed grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We would ask you, Father, just to increase in us a response to you that we might be more pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer.